here we are. Frank, welcome to Bottled. Oh, great to be here with you. <laughs> Thanks for making um, your making some time from your busy schedule there for us. Yeah, yeah, I'm delighted to uh, to talk to someone on the other side of the world. That's always exciting for me. That that's exciting, right? You're in, you're based in Utah, I believe. No, no, uh, the state of Oregon in the Oregon. town of Bend, Oregon, right? And it's kind of an outdoor mountain town. A lot of athletes here, that kind of thing. And so it's a it's a pretty good place. Yeah, pretty it's good. nice to be outside in nature, kind of place. Yeah. Yes, a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> And that's important with all the lockdown and all the restrictions coming in, right? Right. Yeah, I haven't been really that affected by the pandemic, really. You know, I wear a mask oh. when I go out, but I, I can go. I can do most of what I want to do, so it's not mm. bad. Yeah, could have been worse. I mean, we're getting along. Yeah. But hopefully, fingers crossed, 2022 is going to be the year everything opens up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, Frank, it's it's really good to talk to you because I read your book, uh, The Sapiens Curriculum, and it's amazing to sort of talk to the same person who's written the book. And there's so much in it. There's so much information in the book, and there's so much um, truth in the book, and, and just facts about life, just the things that exist, but we don't think about it on a daily basis. Right. And uh, I'm glad to sort of have you um, on the show as well and discuss more about that. But just for the benefit of the guest or the audience, um, who is Frank? Oh, boy. Well, I've got <laughs> quite a, you might say, a checkered background because I, I've studied a lot of different disciplines, but most of which have been centered around the body and human biology. That, that's what I studied at Stanford was human biology. And I had a professor at that time who said that if you really want to understand the human body, the human organism, that you really need to go to Africa and see what our big history is like. And so I actually took him up on that. And after I graduated, I went to Africa and I, I studied. And that was very illuminating for me. And I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about that more. But then I also got involved in martial arts. I got involved in rock climbing and became a, a passionate athlete, you might say. And then I got involved in massage therapy. I went to massage school and learned more about how the body works and how, how it heals. And so that's been, that's been my journey. And then, I, of course, I wanted to get involved in writing, too. So mm -hmm. that's, that's been a big part of it. Also teaching as a martial arts teacher and then having some time in the schools as well opened me up to thinking about what are we doing with education? And so that's, uh, I'm kind of a jack of all trades, you might say, and master of none. And that's, uh, that's yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> and you've talked about this in a particular chapter of your book as well, like the T shape of life as in, do oh. you go broad or do you go deep? And, um, that was very interesting. And is, is that, would you say is that's what you're following as well for your own life? Oh, I love that model because what I think happens for a lot of people and a lot of educational circles is that we don't really define the scope of what we're trying to do. And some people, just by virtue of their personality or their upbringing, they're more inclined to go broad, or some people are more inclined to go deep. And so we have some specialists and some very narrow, hardcore specialists who dig a certain hole really, really deep. And then other people who wander around on the surface 
and go as far as they can toward the horizon. And I love thinking in those terms because I think it, it gives us a sense of balance. You don't want to go too broad. You don't want to go too deep. You want to be able to show up at a party and talk to people and not be too isolated because of your specialization. Yeah. So it's it's a very fertile um, idea, this T model. No, absolutely. I loved it. And it just stuck to my head as well. Just just having that visual of the T going broad versus going deep. And I think um, I, I thought about it and just just the fact that you become a jack of all trades, I think, makes you a more compassionate human being as well, because you see a lot of things, you learn about a lot of things, you get your hands dirty on a lot of places. And uh, I think that's one of the most important characteristics of human beings as well, just to understand everything, a little about everything. Right, right. And that's that goes back to, I, I think, native, indigenous cultures, and even modern Greek culture, this idea of being well-rounded as an educational opportunity, and even the idea of the university, the original idea of the university, to produce a well-rounded student. And I think we're losing sight of that, but that's a that's another topic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and just the education system. Like, I, I started reading a book about uh, 10 days ago, and I've been sort of going around the house, talking to my housemates about certain chapters in the book. And a lot of ideas come in, and it's a very interesting topic because education system, what a – it's a huge thing, education system. Like, we've been taught for years and years and years and years and years about certain things in a certain way. And then if you really think about it, like, has it really worked? in the grand scheme of things for the for the world population and you've touched a lot about the, that topic as well right it's i mean if you just look at the results and you look at the output we're not doing very well and it seems i mean here we have a, a human population that is on the brink of destroying its own future and its own biosphere and so you have to question the education that led us to that point so that's that raises a lot of questions. But what I see is the main problem, the main issue in modern education is we don't have a unifying narrative as to what it's all about and what it's for. And this is I went to teacher education school. They never talked about the narrative. Nobody. You can go all the way through a Ph.D. and really never talk about what is the point of education. And it, that's just such an oversight. And I, I see it could boil down two ways. You could say that educate, the purpose of education is to perpetuate the culture, you might say. But other people might say, well, no, the purpose of education is to empower the student, which is a mm. completely different narrative. And we haven't made up our mind as to what that is. And I, I think educators everywhere really need to sit down and, and go on a vision quest or something and have a meeting and say, okay, here's what we're trying to do. Yeah. And that would help. <laughs> what do you think is the source of this problem? Is it money? As in have um, schools and universities become a money magnet? As in they see a student and they see a honeypot. As in, you know, um, cash cows, in other words. Would that be a major part of the problem? Right. That's Well, that's obviously a big problem at the university because uh, at that level, there is so much focus on money and so much, um, in turn, there's so much focus on what they call the STEM curriculum, S-T-E-M, or science, technology, engineering, and math. And the promise there is that students will 
learn, they'll study really hard, they'll get out, they'll get a good job, and then they'll go into some sort of save the world kind of um, profession. And there's a lot of money in that. But along the way, I think we're losing sight of the humanities. We're losing sight of, of some of the basic things that are fundamental to the human experience. And that's a real danger. It is. It is. And in your opinion, what's what's the best part about uh, learning about humanities and arts? Why is it important compared to the STEM degree? Well, in the first place, it's older. And I'm, I'm really interested in old things because things that are old tend to be powerful and they, they, they're proven. But the humanities give us a sense of story and they help us explain ourselves to ourselves. They, ex they help us explain the world. In, in meaningful ways. And STEM doesn't really do that. STEM is just a method for gathering knowledge. But the humanities tell us how to tell stories. And that is something we desperately need right now. What are humans doing on the planet right now? What is our role? What is our relationship to habitat and the earth? And we're not really even having that conversation. It should come from the humanities. And that's... That's why I feel so strongly about this. I, I think we're, we're in real danger of losing our ability to tell coherent stories about who we are. Mm. There is a stigma in uh, Nepal where I grew up, and I'm going to say this shamelessly, because um, there is an exam that comes in at the end of year 10, which is called the SLC, the School Leaving Certificate. Now, once you finish that, um, parents all around the country, they say, if you're a good student, you go for science. If you're an average student, you go for management or leadership or commerce. But if you are a pathetic, like a poor student, and you're, you've been struggling all your life, you go for humanities. And that's been the narrative in Nepal for all these years, for all these years. But then I started growing up and then started making new friends. And I came across um, a group of people who studied humanities, but they were immensely sharp. Like they were amazing students and i must say they are some of the most incredible people i've ever worked with they're yes. very aware of what's happening they're aware of human intelligence hu human emotions and their ability to read the other person and just to be in coherence with them is incredible and uh, i was very touched by one of uh, the chapters in your book about um just this coherence about being in sync with the other person, and you've given some exercises as well. Would right. that be a part of humanities and arts and life as well? Right. And this, this is kind of illuminated by new discoveries of how the human nervous system works. And basically, you don't have a standalone brain. Our, our brains are social organs, and they're, they're, they work best in conjunction with other people. And not just other people's minds, but their bodies. And if you look at human history, we spent the vast, overwhelming majority of our time on Earth is talking in direct conversation, one-on-one -on -one or one-on-several, to other people and their bodies. And so there's this immense flow of nonverbal information that comes across in those conversations through our posture, through our tone of voice through our facial expressions, that has a direct influence on the brain. And now we're in real trouble because so much of our, our so-called communication has been digitized and we've taken the body out of the process. And this disembodied communication is 
is impoverished. It's nowhere near as good as whole body communication. And that, I think, is a step backwards. It's uh, we need the whole animal to be involved in communication whenever possible. Now, obviously, there's times you have you have to do it. But um, I think the other thing that's happened is we've come to associate literacy with intelligence. So somebody we, we meet somebody who's highly literate and we say, well, they're intelligent. And if somebody is not literate, we say, well, they're, they're really kind of stupid. But yeah. that's a huge mistake, because if you look at the history of humanity, 300,000 years of Homo sapiens, 99% of that time on Earth, every human was illiterate, but nevertheless, extremely intelligent. So I think it's a mistake to associate literacy and intelligence. It, a lot of intelligence people are literate, but not necessarily so. So mm-hmm. that, that's something that we need to take another look at. Yeah. And just this putting this value on a degree, just because you've done a master's degree doesn't mean that you're smart. Because, well, yeah, one of the most important things is to understand yourself and understand the surroundings around you. And yeah, I've been a big advocate of that as well, because I've been, always been an average student, but I've always understood myself in a way that Like, there are certain things I'm really capable of, but I don't think that is something universities and colleges and schools ever focused on. And that's one of the reasons I do the podcast is like compensating on that gap that was there, just this human interaction, communication with others. Right. Sometimes you hear people talk about street smarts, and I think that's a real thing. But in the context of human history, you would talk about habitat smarts. Are you smart in relationship to habitat and the people in your tribe? And that's that's the original human intelligence. And we've kind of abstracted our way away from it. Yeah. And you see, a lot of people may argue uh, that, uh, so you're a very um, big advocate of the paleo way of life, as in the hunter-gatherer theory and just that understanding of your bioregion and uh, hunting for food, gathering for food, and being in a tribe. A lot of people may argue that this evolution that has happened now, like we're in uh, 2021 and we've got almost everything around us, um, the argument may come across that this is what was meant to happen. Like it's not that the paleo way of life is better than what it's now. Maybe this was a part of history, oh, sorry, evolution. And um, have you ever come across that argument as well? People saying that... uh, no, it's not that paleo is better, uh, but it's just a way of things uh, happened. Right. And these futurists talk about the inevitability of these things and how everything's going to be digitized, everything's going to be artificial, everything's going to be nailed down. And this, you might describe this as the Star Trek vision of the future, right? Everything's mm-hmm. going to be super clean, everything's going to work, and it's all going to be pretty. But, um, I think the facts go in the other direction because what we're seeing is this enormous crisis in mental health around the world as people are dragged out of their indigenous uh, cultures and settings into the modern world. And some people manage to adapt to this modern alien environment, but a lot of people don't. And I'm one of, to be honest, I'm one of those people. I, I struggle to adapt um, if I don't get my time outdoors, if I don't get my time in proximity to nature, then I start feeling. So everything we know about the body points to the health giving 
benefits of being in contact with ancestral conditions. And it's it's hard to imagine, even if even if all the technology works as advertised, it's hard to imagine that will satisfy our bodies and our and our spirits, to be honest. So I, I think it's kind of a um, distraction from what we need. Yeah. So where do we begin? If we were to, let's say, for example, sort of change the way we live and become a better version of ourselves and make our communities go that way as well, where do we begin? How do we, um, where do we learn from the paleo way of life? Right. Well, I think the big hit, the most important priority is understanding big history. Because when you do that, when you understand the vast scope of human history and what constitute, constitutes the normal human experience, you come away with a completely different set of conclusions about who we are and what we ought to be doing. And so this is why I think big history, big human history needs to be taught at the earliest possible stage in education. It's like, we are humans. This is how old we are. And this is, we have a 300,000 year, 300, year history. And almost all of that has been as scavengers, hunters, and gatherers. So we are all from this indigenous origin. And when you look at it that way, you come to a lot of new conclusions about mismatch and life in this alien environment. And you start looking for opportunities to reconnect with our ancestry. And mm. the Native and indigenous people have been telling this for a long time, <laughs> and we're not very good listeners, but that's uh, that's where we need to go. Yeah, and Frank, what exactly is big history? If you were to sort of go into the precise definition of it, right? Well, th this is super interesting because up until quite recently, historians did all their work with written documents because that's all they had to work with. So if you were in the early 20th century and you were a historian, you would go to the library and look at written documents. But written documents only go back some 5,000 years. So by that measure, you're going to be looking only at a very small segment of history. And then it was in the middle of the 20th century, you start to get these amazing discoveries about um, radiocarbon dating and the age of the earth and age of, of plants and animals. DNA and the whole thing. And now all of a sudden, this completely new scope of history is opened up to us. And there's a fellow in Australia, David Christian, who has pioneered the study of big history. And he's mm. got some great teaching materials on that. But that is the new way to teach history. It's, it's yeah. very exciting. And is it in yeah. curriculums uh, at the universities or schools uh, today or no? Some and there is a big history project. There's a website where people, teachers, can go and and learn this stuff. And it's I think it's essential that we do that. And yeah. it's been such a it's been such a huge paradigm shift that mm. education is never going to be the same. No, no, and uh, it's it's not going to be the same. And it's going to take a while for it to change as well, if it has to change, because. Eight billion, we are approaching 8 billion people uh, on the planet now. And uh, there's a lot of philosophies and there's a lot of, there's a thought process that's already been ingrained into our brains. And uh, for someone to come and say that you've got to learn about history in order to lead a better life, it's just a hard concept to grasp for a lot of people. Yes, yes. Right? 
Yes, because we're um, so many of us live by what is called the myth of progress, and especially in the West, the modern West, and the the, the so-called visionaries, they're really interested in this idea that things just keep getting better and better. And in terms of technology, that might kind of be true, but if you believe the myth of progress that everything just keeps getting better and better, then you tend to discard your ancestry. You, you tend to come to the conclusion that your ancestors were, were not up to par. They were, they were not as smart as, as we are because they were just sweaty cavemen living you know, in the bush. And that's a mistake. That's a major mistake. So this myth of progress, I think, is something that we're also going to have. Yeah. And one of the biggest um, things that sort of um, shook me in terms of culture shock when I moved to Australia was how individualistic uh, the Western society is. Because yeah. um, I grew up in Nepal, like we discussed before, and it's a very collective society. Like we take care of each other. Like you can never get away from people. We live in joint families. The proximity between people is very close. And you can never lead a, um, an individualistic life if you, if you live in Asia. Mm-hmm. especially where I come from. And um, watching the way of life in the West, I mean, there are perks. Like, it's a, it's a it's an easygoing life. Like, you can legit wake up and live your life in one room, have your food delivered, do whatever you want on your computer, and go to bed, and that's it. But it's not the, the same thing in Asia as well. Uh, but the paleo way of life, like you've mentioned as well, is very collective. Like, we take care of each other in tribes. How important are tribes now? Uh, tribes is not the, may, maybe not the traditional definition of tribes, but how important is it is human connection today? Well, I think it's as essential to our health as it's always been. But the problem is our tribes are so ambiguous now, and they're we're as a people, we're always making up and breaking up, and our tribes are always in flux. And one day you're part of one tribe, and the next day you you have new affiliation. And so that is incredibly stressful to be constantly wondering what tribe you belong to. And that's never happened before in human history. It's, in, in other words, it's historically abnormal to try and live that way. And yet we're, we're kind of being forced into it. So I'm not sure what the solution is there, except mm. keep your friends close and try and maintain some kind of coherence in a in a tribe that you can rely upon because yes that is the ancestral way of living and it's not just nepal but i I remember a story when um, i was in africa i went over there one time i was by myself and i went to a hotel it was a kind of remote area and i was talking with some people on the staff some locals and they were curious because they didn't see that many white people. And they said, well, you know, what are you doing here? And why, why are you here? And I, I told them, well, I'm a, I'm a writer. I'm doing my research. And they said, well, where's your family? I said, well, they're back home in the United States. And they couldn't understand. They said, well, why didn't you bring them with you? <laughs> and I said, well, we, we don't, just don't work that way in the U.S. We have this individualized culture, and that's not how we do things. And they, they still couldn't understand. It. And that was a big moment. Yeah, and just bringing your family with. I mean, yep, yeah, I, I agree to the gentleman. Uh, it's just the fact that you know you you take your family with you, and you're sort of always with them and in coherence with them with your friends as well, and just 
being an individual in a, in the Western world, it's it doesn't it sounds cool. It sounds like the the standard way of life, but mm-hmm. ultimately, where it leads to uh, is is not a very pretty place. It's it's like you you become lonely at a certain point. Yes, and that's a a huge complaint of people in the modern world. There's survey after survey finds that a lot of people now are complaining about loneliness, and especially in the modern industrialized West. And it's really no surprise when you think about it. That's how we set things up. There's a uh, there's a New York Times columnist named David Brooks, and he talks about this individualized culture as the big meat. And that's where people put their emphasis now on the big meat. And it's kind of fun for a while and maybe empowering even for a while and liberating for a while. But, you know, it's, it's got to circle back. 100%. It's just yeah. that connection, that touch with your family and your land is, is incredibly important. And um, I think that makes you a happier person. And I was reading this article about um, why people in smaller countries are happier. And one of the theories, like there's multiple out there, but one of the theories uh, is that there's a very uh, simple life in poorer countries, in smaller countries. Mm -hmm. And you're relying on the other person in your family to sort of work with you in order to achieve a common goal. And there's not a lot of desires. All you really want is a is a decent paying job and food at the table and your family to be happy. So there's not a lot of desire. So you're living your life and there's always someone to blame. As in, <laughs> if something's not working out for you uh, in a poorer, a smaller country, you have the government to blame for. You're like, right. you know, fuck the government or something like that. Right. Yeah. And there's always this thought that, I'm not doing well because the government doesn't provide me with these, you know, X, Y, and Z resources for me to attain my goals and become a much richer person. However, in the West, in richer countries, you could, you don't have anyone to blame. Especially in Australia, it's 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 perfect. Like it's beautiful and everything works here and it's safe and there's not a lot of crime. Obviously, there are problems, but it's it doesn't really affect you on a day to day basis. And if you don't succeed, you've got nobody to blame. You've got all these resources. You could have gone outside and talked to people and made things happen, but you, you stayed home. And, um, and that's one of the, uh, I've read that that's one of the sources for uh, depression in richer countries. Would you agree to that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, it's, um, it's almost, if, if you wanted to design a social setting to produce depression, that's what you would do. <laughs> you would you would design a highly individualized culture, and that's what we've done. So it's uh, we once again. I mean, the theme is always reconnection, reweaving ourselves back to the habitat, reweaving ourselves back some sort of coherent tribes. Yeah, and uh, having this a uh, tribe with you, um, there there would be conflicts as in. You know, let's say, for example, you're with your friends and family in a certain place and you've had this um, or in a certain group and you have a certain, some sort of conflict. Would you happen to have a certain, uh, would the paleo people have a certain method of uh, diffusing this conflict if there were to, uh, if it was to happen in a certain tribe? Yes. And my source on this comes from a book called The Old Way. And the... The author, Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, she grew up as a young girl. 
Her father was an anthropologist, and this is in Southern Africa. So she actually grew up with the San Bushman, the Kalahari Bushman. And in one of the chapters in the book, she talks about this, that there, there were conflicts. These are human beings, and they argue about things, and they, they have their, uh, their fights. She said what they would do, they would stop everything. They would say, okay, we're going we're gonna to set up camp here for the night. And we're going to talk this out. And if we have to stay here for two or three or four days, we're going to keep talking until we get this sorted out. And there was no time pressure to, you got to resolve this right now and move on. It wasn't like that. It was like, no, this is a rift in the fabric of our tribe. And it's important. It's important that we deal with it and let's sit down and take it seriously. And that was a big eye opener for me. I mean, the whole pace of life that she describes is really exciting because it wasn't just conflict, but for example, sleep. You can sleep whenever you want in a Kalahari tribe. There's no stigma attached to rest, sleep, or any of that. Just everything moves slower and it works. It's the the most successful culture that's ever existed on the planet. Yeah. And I'm talking about sleep, that you mentioned it. Uh, one of the chapters in your book, I absolutely loved it. As in, if you if you're tired, just go to bed, just take a nap, and it's it's okay. And we're not sure where the stigma came from, right? As in, if you take a nap, you're considered to be lazy, or if you sleep for longer, you're considered to not have goals. You've got to wake up at four o'clock in the morning. That's where, where did it come from? Well, that came with industrialization, and this was the the capitalistic takeover of modern Europe and modern America. And all of a sudden, this is the story of the Luddite revolution that was eventually uh, quashed by the capitalists, that that all of a sudden, your native culture and your native way of of living was no longer acceptable. And so now you have to start showing up on time, and you're not permitted to sleep, and you have to keep it going. And that ethic, that work ethic, has even infected education as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of videos coming on Facebook or Instagram, all these entrepreneurs talking about how they slept for four hours, woke up at four o'clock in the morning and then you know, did their thing. And, and a, lot of try, a lot of people try and mirror that. And ultimately what it does is make you depressed. I'd rather have an eight hour sleep and do the best after waking up at eight o'clock in the morning. And I think it's what you do in the, the hours that you go awake. That's what, that's what matters. Right. And what's happened is we have framed sleep as a selfish activity. And it's really not. It's actually a pro-social activity. Because when you sleep and you wake up rested, you're better at making decisions. You're better at interacting with other people. You're better at caring for other people. And so sleep is a pro-social thing. It's not selfish at all. And it's important to frame it that way. Yeah. And it's important to, to, for that to be taught in schools as well. I think a lot of what we've discussed comes down to the education system as in what we're taught, because ultimately that's what children go through. Uh, that's the most important time of their lives as in what they learn at schools. Right. Right. And, and at ha- homes as well with parents. And I wanted to get your view because um, you've got very specific thoughts and your, your thought process is amazing, incredible. And I wanted to get your views on gaming or video games. Where do you see video games fit in today's world? And is it something that should be uh, limited to for children? 
Well, I'm, I'm a bit of a Luddite on this, and I haven't played the last video game I ever played was probably early on when they first came out. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm really skeptical that they're a good thing for people. Now, I know there's some people who seem to use it as a genuinely creative pursuit, and they can keep it in balance, but it's also highly addictive. And some people, I think it takes them down a rabbit hole that's really hard to climb out of. So it's the dose makes the poison, right? Like so many of these things, a little bit can probably be a good stimulus for creativity, but that you hit that tipping point, I think pretty early. And it's the other, it's not that they're so bad in and of themselves. They, there's a displacement cost to playing video games because every hour that you're on the computer, that's an hour that you're not outdoors. That's an hour that you're not interacting with living systems. And so you, be, in that sense, you become dumber for every hour you're on the computer. You're not in contact with, with the biosphere. Mm. And that's a big deficit for the body and for mental health. So, yes, I, I think we have to be really careful. Yeah. And, and, you know, just talking about going out and being um, being in interaction with uh, the living organisms outside. Today, we classify humans in certain, um, with certain terms, such as extrovert or introverts. And a lot of introverts, they, they tend to say, I like to stay home or I can stay in one room for hours and hours and hours or for days and read a book or do something. Um, where did this come from? The idea that, you know, I'm the kind of person who wants to stay home and doesn't like to interact with other persons. And I've even heard people saying, I don't like other people because you know, they annoy me or it drains me, drains the energy out of me. Where, where did this come from? Because it doesn't sound natural after our conversation. Right, right. Well, it it is unnatural in a sense. However, I think it's a pretty typical stress response because when the body and the brain are confronted with a lot of complexity, we tend to withdraw. And complexity, again, the dose makes the poison, right? A little bit of complexity can be exciting and stimulating. But once you pass the tipping point there, it feels good to withdraw and maybe isolate in a room and to have control over your circumstances. And this is this is kind of a danger I, th- I see going forward because as the world becomes increasingly complex and increasingly stressful, I think more people are going to withdraw to the in- interior indoor environment and lose touch with the system that gives us life. So, yeah, it's understandable and, and in small doses, sure. But yeah. So we've still got to get out and touch, touch the plants and the animals. Yeah. yeah, that 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 that's a given, right? So that that has right. to be done. As in, right. go out once in a while and just interact with things around you. Yeah, yeah. And this brings me uh, to this uh, this concept that we um, initially talked about in an email as well about attachments gone wrong. Oh. And I read your blog post, and it gives me um, a feeling that we've become very materialistic. As in everything around us, um, we rely on computers and phones and uh, just objects around us. But we should be attached to Mother Nature and the the innate way of life. Yeah. 
What was the inspiration uh, for for that blog post for you or for that chapter? Well, I've I spent a lot of time in Seattle, and I paid a lot of attention to people's T-shirts. Believe it or not, and people have on their T-shirts their one of their favorite attachments, and it's over their heart. And a lot of times, it's the name of their company, or the name of the their favorite software system. Or their favorite, you know, computer application. There's a lot of tech in Seattle, and people attach to these things that are historically wildly abnormal. And I'm wondering about that. And, or people attach to their their vehicle. That's a big one. You know, their motorcycle, their pickup truck, whatever it is, or any number of possessions that they might have. And I keep thinking about the paleo. What would you attach to in the paleo? Well, you would attach to your mother or some other caregiver, because we always forget this. When you're born, you are 100% helpless. You cannot function without the help of another human being. And so we come pre-wired to attach to another human being, or maybe several human beings. People are going to take care of you. That's absolutely essential. If that fails for any reason, then you're going to go down another road in terms of your neurobiology. And you're going to be more primed for vigilance and stress reactions to the world. You're going to see the world as a more dangerous place. But if you attach successfully, then your body's going to turn on these growth hormones and you're going to grow into a full function human being. And then, of course, as we've talked about attachment to habitat, I am the land, the land is me. I am the river, the river is me. I am the forest, the forest is me. These are historically normal ways to think. And mm-hmm. now we've come up with all these compensations. If those two things fail, then you're basically lost in space. And then you have to reach out and attach to uh, your motorcycle or your pickup truck or whatever else it is. And these are compensations. And they, they yeah. just don't work as well. No. So where do we start? Do you, would you say minimalism is uh, the way to go? As in having the least amount of items that help you live a normal life? Yes. I really like this idea of minimalism. And I was introduced to this in the world of climbing, especially through the, uh, the writings of Yvonne Chouinard, who was the founder of Patagonia. And he, this was his whole idea of how to own things, what kind of possessions to own. You want, the, you want the best possible possessions and the least number of possessions. If you have the best quality stuff, you don't need very many things. And this is what you know, the, the big rap on, on Americans and Westerners in general is that we're too materialistic. But in a way, that's not really true. It's, it's almost like we're not materialistic enough because we, we don't value the stuff that we have. So we, we just buy and buy and buy and you know, bury ourselves in this mound of stuff. And then we have to manage it all. And that's, that's a really stressful way to live. So in the world of climbing, people say, look, just get the minimum. And, but make it really good. And then all of a sudden, life becomes so much easier and, and more enjoyable because the, the stuff that you do interact with gives you pleasure. And then you don't have to worry about managing a whole pile of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, minimalism, alpine style, that's another word for this, is, I think, an incredible and valuable philosophy. Yeah, and from what I've heard, the Japanese do this best, right? Having yeah. the least amount of items in your home. Yes, yes. And I, you know, I spent time in the martial arts and you go to a traditional martial art dojo and it's got nothing. In it. I mean, it's the white walls and white mat and maybe 
couple of iconic uh, calligraphies on the wall, or maybe the picture of the founder on the wall. And that's about it. And you're there to focus. And that's what happens. So it's a, it's a beautiful, and a lot of modern yoga studios are the same way. Um, Corbin mm. the same way. You, you see it here and there, these minimalistic environments, and they, they really work. Yeah. And from what I've heard, the Japanese, they really try and preserve their culture. And it really, I think it's, it's one of their biggest selling points as a nation and as people of a country as well, just to preserve what you've um, grown up with for years and years, for hundreds of years. Right. And that's a natural thing is to attach to the culture you grew up with and try and preserve it. We see this now uh, with Native Americans who are doing a lot of work trying to preserve their culture. And it's hard work because the commercial industrial complex is so powerful. It's kind of a David and Goliath thing, but it's it's really important work. Yeah. And uh, w- in regards to minimalism, you know how sometimes um, we accumulate things like laptops or new shoes or bags or whatever we have in the house. Uh, do you have a process of discarding things you don't need? Uh, because I think one of the one of the chapters in your book says uh, if you haven't used something for twenty years, <laughs> you probably don't need it anymore. Do you have something that you've devised for yourself? Right. Well, I give a lot of stuff away. I mean, that's I, I get pleasure from that, and I don't like the the haggling that comes from you know, trying to sell some used piece of thing. I try always on the lookout for a needy person that I can give something, and mm. that's a win win. And it. Um, I, I enjoy it. It gives me pleasure. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, many years ago, uh, I was in a very rough patch in my life. And um, I don't know what happened to me, but I started giving stuff away, uh, even things that I would use on a regular basis. For example, a mobile phone charger, like a wireless charger, which was not very... I, I used to have a wire charger, but I used to give the wireless one away, or I used to give shoes away, or I used to give uh, my possessions away. And I wasn't in a very um, healthy time in my, in my life uh, compared to what I am today. And um, I've read that this is one of the char- characteristic of people who are who are depressed as well, that mm-hmm. uh, you give possessions away and you try and have the least amount of things in your home and for yourself. Which was a very intriguing concept for me, and I found it very interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely play with that idea. The relationship between material possessions and depression, and mm. yeah, yeah, I said. And once again, the dose makes a poison, right? A little bit of possessions it can go a long way. You hit that tipping point, and now you become just a manager of stuff, and that's yeah, strategy. yeah, Drained and it's. Out. And it's very hard to resist that temptation now, right? To buy things, just the buy now button. You want to go for it. If you oh, go yeah. to a, if you go to a shopping website, there's all these discounts and flashy sales advertisements coming in, and you can't help but just spend the ten dollars and get this flashy gadget that you don't need. <laughs> yeah, you attach to it for a little while, and you realize, oh, well, that's not making my life any better. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess the solution there is to detox, as in just to stay away from your mobile phones or computers for X, X many hours a day. Yeah, and I know a lot of people are doing hard limits on that or there's software to, to do that. And 
I don't really know what the answer is, but I think you have to limit your ambition online and just say, look, I, you triage it down, say, this is, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to accomplish. And once I'm done with that, then that's the end of it. And scaling back some of our, our ambitions, I think is a good thing. Yeah. But Frank, yeah, it's been fun talking to you. Uh, I guess before we head to the final part of the podcast, what's your parting message for the world? How do we make this place better? Right. Well, I think we're in for a pretty wild ride. And things are, go things are going to be really challenging in the decades ahead. And I... I don't see any way to avoid that. There's a lot of people who say, well, we need a technological fix and the technological fix is, is going to just carry us through. And I don't see it quite that way. I think we're in desperate need of a narrative and a desperate need of a new form of education, getting people to focus on what really needs to be saved right now. And that's habitat. I mean, the, the, the the destruction of habitat, that's something you just don't bounce back from. If you destroy habitat, it takes a long time. And so we have to prioritize that. Mm. We also have to put the emphasis on telling a new story about who we are and what our relationship is to the planet, because we're not doing enough work in that respect. The, again, I say we have to listen to Native people because they have the story. And they've had the story that, again, that was the most successful culture in the history of humanity, is this native indigenous culture. And if, if we were to listen to them, I think that would be a very powerful thing going forward. Yeah. yeah. So just look back and see what's important and learn from the elders. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the, this whole thing with the elders is, is really interesting right now because we we do the inverse of what native people used to do. Native people universally valued the wisdom of the older people in their tribe because the older people had seen more. They'd, they'd seen more hunts. They'd seen more seasons. They knew more. They, they knew how to bring the tribe into the future. But we yeah. do the opposite. We devalue our older people. And we say we just marginalize them and we don't listen to what they have to tell us. So. We, we need a change of heart on that one as well. Yeah, we think we are smarter because of all these technological revolutions and just advancements coming in. We, we don't really check to see how it's really affecting us and what, where we came from, the struggles that we had to, um, had to solve or climb through. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, just the, the last chapter of your book, um, I forgot what the name of the chapter was, but it was about uh, being a leader, uh, as in uh, the elder of the tribe. Would that be Tri it? Tribal eldership, and I also write about what they call servant leadership. Mm -hmm. So servant leadership is basically the humble position. It's the modest position of the leader of the tribe who says, you know, I'm actually working for you. You're not here to glorify me. I'm here to be a servant leader. I'm here to work for the tribe to help the tribe get into the future. And you hear some people in leadership and business schools talking about servant leadership, but 
it, it doesn't get the attention it deserves because CEOs in, in America, at least, are rock stars, right? And yeah. they, they make millions of dollars and they are inaccessible and they really aren't acting as servant leaders. So that's another thing that we work on. Yeah. Wise words, Frank. It's been, mm-hmm. been incredibly fun talking to you. Yes, uh, me too. And uh, I'd love to do it again sometime. And I'll, uh, Absolutely. I'll be in touch. Absolutely. Yeah. For the benefit of the listeners, uh, your book, The Sapiens Curriculum, where can they purchase it? Right. Well, it's going to be reissued in November. Um, the original was a self-published book, and now it's kind of had a makeover. And it's going to be out. People can buy it on Amazon now. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you wait a month, you'll get the updated version. But if people go to exuberantanimal.com, that's my website, and all the books are there, including the new one about stress. That'll be out in uh, just a couple of weeks. So that's perfect. Yeah, I think that one, people, I'm excited about it. I think people enjoy that one. It's called Beware False Tigers, and mm-hmm. it's a whole, whole look at stress. So, mm. yeah, you've sent me a copy of that, and thank you so much for that. I'll, I'll read that as well. Good, good. And we'll good. be in touch. But yeah, thank you for listening, ladies and gentlemen. That was Frank with us. And uh, thank you, Frank, one more time. Yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, if I can help in any way, let me know. And I will definitely send you Alex Pelazon, the uh, Rights of Nature guy. And then another fellow who does satirical um, videos about the Australian government. Mm-hmm. And he's he's fantastic he's a historian who kind of took this turn to produce these satire videos and which are quite good and Mm. you'll love it so what's his name giordano nani i've heard this name somewhere uh yeah his company is called the juice media oh okay and you can find him if you go to the the sapiens.earth that's my other other website he's on there where i do an interview with him perfect will do yeah Uh, yeah. but thank you frank yeah absolutely really fun and all the best to you and i i hope this uh, series goes well and yeah if you ever want to chat again i'd be happy to do it absolutely i have your contact details your email and we'll just take them from there okay all right then cheers